Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is ready to revolt this May Day. Today we have Laura, Kellen, and Ambria. And this week we are talking with Jane McAlevey, which is kind of even hard to conceptualize right now. So thank you so, so much for being with us, Jane. I am totally flattered and excited to be here. Yay! Yay. (laughs) I wanted to start by doing a brief biography on Jane because I don't want her to be too modest here. And I'm going to pull right from her website, which is janemcalevey.com. So Jane McAlevey is an organizer, author, and scholar. Her first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, was named the most valuable book of 2012 by The Nation magazine, which... Casual. It's like super casual, not high praise at all. Her second book, (laughs) No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, it was released late in 2016. And it's amazing, and everyone should read it. Uh, She is a regular commentator on radio and TV. She continues to work as an organizer on union campaigns, lead contract negotiations, and train and develop organizers. She spent the past two years as a postdoc at Harvard Law School, no big deal, and is (laughs) presently writing her third book, Striking Back, about organizing power and strategy forthcoming from Verso. She also regularly writes for Alternate and The Nation magazine. Jane, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? (gasps) No, that's already too much. No, I'm kidding. No, that's fine. (laughs) we found that all online so (laughs) you want people to know that and by the way this was the like on her website there's a long biography and a short biography this was the short biography yes there is there's a lot going on there it's amazing so she's also been to the moon yeah (laughs) yeah can we talk about like the privatization of the space shuttle because that's really upsetting me in terms of like the overall neoliberal (laughs) thing that's happening but anyway no i'm kidding i can't stand that elon musk it's like nasa what's up with that anyway it's it's a nightmare it's truly yeah but we don't have to talk about the moon but that is related to the neoliberal crisis in our country but anyway yeah (laughs) this is going to be depressing isn't it no um talk about winning (laughs) Yes. We always try whenever we start to get sad on the the podcast, and I think you'll appreciate this, Jane. We just try to really hard to be like, oh, we're gonna be angry instead. Okay, everybody, get really mad. <laughs> so yeah, we don't get yes. like sad and depressed and make a really boring podcast episode that makes no everyone despair. Cry. Despair is our enemy, uh, yeah. and hope and winning strategies is our friend. And since winning is my favorite topic, we should be fine. Yeah. Oh, Yay. excellent. Woo. <laughs> so today, this is actually our early May Day episode, and today we're going to be in conversation with Jane about May Day and organizing more broadly. Um, we're going to do like a very, very simple, brief sharing about the history of May Day. So May 1st is called May Day. Woo! <laughs> the state has a ton of important associations for leftists besides being a traditional day for celebrating the spring all throughout Europe. Um, it's the day we remember the Haymarket strike and executions in Chicago. Um, This is known now as International Workers' Day. It was coined by socialists. Yeah. So Haymarket, for folks who may not be aware, was a rally and a strike in Chicago 
in favor of an eight-hour workday that started on May 1st, 1886, I believe, and then carried over for several days. So on May 3rd, police killed several protesters. And then on May 4th, when police moved to shut the rally down, somebody threw a bomb at the cops, sparking a riot and more deaths. And then a bunch of anarchists were sentenced to hang, as Ambriel alluded to, because anarchists got blamed for everything back then. And um, yeah, the Haymarket massacres really solidified the importance of May Day in the labor movement. Um, and ever since it was named a day in memoriam in the late 1800s, it's just regularly been marked by protests and marches and strikes. So over the years, there's been a lot of different events and causes that have just kind of come to be associated with it. Totally. Jane, do you want to add anything to that? You know, I mean, A, I think that's great. And I actually think it's important to tell our history because particularly labor history is so buried in the U.S. But what's always been interesting to me about May Day is it's I don't even think I had appreciation for it until I was in Europe on a May Day. And I realized there are massive protests annually mm-hmm. in most of the world on a celebration, a commemoration of an anniversary of a major strike in our country. And the effect of McCarthyism is so profound in the U.S. that totally. you know we do our marches on Labor Day, which is like a Hallmark mm-hmm. card. And mm-hmm. the bosses created it to distract us from May Day. And first of all, the tenor and tone of the marches that typically happen in throughout Europe and other parts of the world on May Day are pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, there'll be tens of fa- like I was the last time I was in May Day in Europe was in Greece. OK, at the height of the Syriza movement. But it was. You know, there was close to a million people marching through Greece celebrating or commemorating strikers killed and the and the role of strikes in working class power in the United States. And then in the United States on May Day, it's like, oh, you know, a couple of DSA chapters and whatever, you know, have like a book talk. It's like, oh, my God. Anyway, so it just it shows the gap in like consciousness about the importance of worker struggle uh, that we need to up the ante on a little bit. And thankfully, the education union seemed to be doing that for us this spring. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. I also want to add, so when I lived in Ithaca, New York for a while, if any of you don't know Ithaca, it's like kind of a hippie college town situation, but this coworker I worked with would pull an all-nighter every, like from midnight on May 1st, you know, on, and would pick wildflowers and place them on the doorstep of everyone she knew, like all of her friends, and just as like a little gift. And I like, that was more before I was introduced to leftism in the labor movement. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a moment for us to be soft with one another, show (laughs) appreciation for one another and the planet. And so I had May Day all wrong for a long time, but I feel like, you know, we can like... (laughs) have that like soft uh spring awakening thing woven into it as well (laughs) nice to each other and vicious to our enemies vicious to the bosses (laughs) exactly exactly yeah so i like the word soft with one another that's we could use more of that in the labor uh, movement generally and right not soft with the bosses by the way but soft with each other is great yes exactly (laughs) but can we also just can we just also say to people like the eight hour workday i mean i think this might be like a lovely segue or just part of the softness and the beauty of it. What people in this country were campaigning for from the late, from like 1880 sort of on the beginning of the call for the eight hour workday back with a very different trade union movement that we had in the 1800s, heyday of the Knights of labor and the craft unions were really strong by which I mean 
iron workers and steel workers and people who came and, you know, made your fence post outside for hire and stuff, right? They're all unionized. And the campaign was for three eighths, right? It was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what we will, meaning mm. read, dance, poetry, hang out with our kids, pick flowers, leave them on our friend's doorstep. Like <laughs> that 888, like we always just think it's the eight hour workday. They had three slogans. Like we have never fulfilled the promise of what trade union sisters and brothers were campaigning for in the 1880s, which was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what you will. I don't think I've ever had eight hours of sleep and I definitely don't get eight hours for what you will. You know what I mean? And most workers in this country don't either. But that was the vision of, you know, visionary trade unionists 120 and 30 years ago in this country. And we're still kind of returning to that basic demand for eight, eight and eight. So I just want to like note what their actual full campaign slogan was. Right. Absolutely. It's also like that has gendered implications as well even if like it was a labor movement across genders but a lot of the eight hours of what you will I mean I feel like we we recognize throughout since the movement that caused the eight-hour workday we still see the burden of labor at home on women um and so it's like it's hard to talk about you know the the 888 without like being like also we're going to dismantle patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is why I like being on season of the bitch. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely gendered. I mean, really sort of what isn't at this point, but it is. And I think it's a great point, but I have to say I was just in, um, I was just in Sweden, which is where my people are from. And I go there often. And one of my sister-in-laws just had another baby. This is so true unbelievable in Sweden. So, you know, it was like last month. So I get off the airplane and they're like, oh, let's go to Lisa's house first. So I'm like, sure. So we walk from the, you know, high-speed train, well-funded high-speed unionized train from the airport in central Stockholm. And we go over to Lisa's first. And I walked in and it was like, oh, right. So what are you doing for the next year? You're home with your baby being paid on one year of maternity leave. And then when you finish your year of paid maternity leave to spend time and bond with your new baby, your husband is going to take his full year of paternity leave. Because in Sweden, they've now linked that women can only access their full maternity leave if their male partner, in the case of men or their partner, but it's basically to encourage men to learn how to become full-time, serious, and equal partners in the home labor. So they've actually paired the law like it's incentivized now that unless unless the person called the husband, say it that way, unless the person called the husband spends an equal amount of time learning to walk, feed and care for the kid, the person who birthed it doesn't get full access to their own maternity leave, which is, you know, someone here would call that the nanny state, you know, social engineering, whatever they would call it. And I think it gets right to why women are such full participants in the workforce in Sweden and also get time with their kids, which is, you know, I think it's like mind boggling, eye popping stuff for people in this country to realize just how backward we are. Totally. Mm. How much less power we have. They have a 74% density in the trade union movement in Sweden. Mm. And it's no accident that they have they have like people sitting in offices figuring out how to make gender parity uh, real in their country. And it's it's pretty wild. But anyway, that's what happens in a, you know, under attack from the right, by the way. But but still a country that has largely uh, 
Socialist Party driving a social democracy with workers still very empowered in their trade unions where they would not have the same kind of Me Too crisis or so many things we have because you would just quit if you were a woman uh, at a bad job in Sweden. And then you'd go right into the income support center all throughout their, you know, social fabric of their society. And then you'd find a better boss and then whatever. You know, we're just I just am always reminded since we started off talking about May Day of how incredible the disparities are um, here compared to what just, a, you know, most of the world is not Sweden, right? But a handful of places. But yeah, very gendered, very, very gendered. I want to backtrack a little bit, and I hope this is okay, to us talking about the eight-hour workday and and uh, the 888 thing. I mean, we still were talking about that, but kind yeah. of uh, yeah. something that it made me think about is sort of the new the new landscape of labor. Um, you know, I do still have friends who have nine to five jobs, but a lot of people I know instead work as servers or they work in retail or, um, you know, they do various shared economy gigs. I myself will be a teacher, which also means that I won't have any sort of simple defined workday in a lot of ways. And so I think when we think about, oh, you should have the weekend off, like, well, obviously, well, that doesn't apply to service workers and, oh, you know, things like that. I'm really thinking about like how we define what an employee is and what labor and work is and how that sort of allowed us to not, I think, in the mainstream culture, see the ways in which a lot of people's rights are being eroded because uh, most people now don't have what we consider typical jobs. And I think this is a huge like a huge thing with neoliberalism sort of breaking down like what it means to be a worker. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I don't know what else there is to say, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, all of it is important. And it's also really important in terms of how we think about strategy, right? Like mm -hmm. what the differences are in the workplaces and then how, like for me, every problem or every challenge, everything we think about as a problem actually really does just become a challenge because if we keep our organizer head on, there is a way to fight past and push past and build under almost any circumstance. So it's more like, so how do we rejigger? What does it mean for us that many service workers don't have the weekend, quote unquote? So I think it's totally relevant. And I think several things. One is, so the concept of like the weekend, I think it's better to think of it as a concept of, do you get, you know, a real two days off? And I would argue do we get a real three days off? I mean, we should be calling, we should be returning to the demands that some of the smarter folks were having in the 30s and 40s for like a 28-hour work week um, that Macron, by the way, in France is now undoing these mm. historic laws they've had in France, for example, right, what the neoliberals do when they get to France. But anyway, so I think, I think about so many workers who are in the service economy who work in, let's say, a 24-hour context, jobs that are 24 hours, but also that span the weekend. So I've spent most of my life with hospital workers and healthcare workers, and of course, that's a 24-7 um, situation. But when people have a union, because they've actually figured out how to unionize in uh, an industry that's still overwhelmingly not union. I mean, the odd thing is, we can point to examples of nurses and hospital and healthcare workers who have some fought for some really good tradition. The truth is the vast majority of nurses and healthcare and hospital workers in the US are not in a union, have never had a union. That's just sort of true across the board. But even in a unionized sector, 
you know, they fight for and win uh, with a good union fight. Three twelves. So most nurses or healthcare workers will work three, if they're unionized, work three days a week and they're three longer shifts. And depending on how strong the contract is, they might start accruing overtime at eight hours between the gap between eight and 12. They might not. But so if, you know, security guards in New York City who are all unionized, basically in all the big buildings, I think about all these lovely people who are in all the rent control buildings because there still are some of those things in New York. And, you know, I think about Danny, who's someone I've known forever in a, in a building in New York City, and he has three days off a week by union contract. But he always says to me, it's my weekend because his weekend starts Monday at three o'clock, you know, and he's off in the middle of the week for three days. But so I think the employers are definitely trying to shift the whole concept of what an employee means. And mm. if we t- if we take one like to me, the, the arch nemesis for all of us right now is Bezos. And it's a problem that he owns the Washington Post and that somehow that movie makes people think he's cool right now. But <laughs> we think about Amazon. No, seriously, like the, the amount of liberal friends I have who are like, oh, they saw the post and they're like, oh, it's so cool that like this rich, this is literally how liberals think. And I mean a lot of nice people too when I say this. They say, oh, it's so cool that this multimillionaire now owns that paper instead of a hedge fund because, you know, he can keep the paper well-funded. It's like the theory behind why we elect a millionaire to the presidency because he's not bought or something. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) So intense. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, did you read the story that Amazon warehouse workers are peeing in bottles this week because they're so afraid to walk off the line? Like, those are the same conditions that people were fighting in the 1930s in the coal and steel mines. So I think I'm just going back to saying... What we think of as how we got to like the concept of an auto worker having a regular shift in an assembly line, the assembly lines in the early 1930s looked and felt a lot like an Amazon warehouse right now. Mm. So we have to remember that it was people fighting to rationalize a totally abusive, absolutely irrational, piss in a bottle, lose your job, get your finger cut off, be owned by the boss jobs like that's what was happening in the new guilt the last gilded age in the turn from 1929 into 1930 into 1931 32 like people have this idea of the auto worker having this very regulated you know assembly line job and if you really if we do our history we will realize that they were under amazon warehouse and amazon factory like conditions Mm -hmm. until people got together and said no fucking way are we going to put up with this anymore Mm -hmm. and began to figure out what if we all walk out together what if we all sit down and stop the line together so when i read stories about jeff bezos the most oppressive sob i can think of as a boss in this country right now (laughs) like making his workers piss in a bottle and then putting on like a headphone and looking cool for a washington post ad you know we just like i do not accept that the irregular system that's going on in the average Amazon warehouse is going to sustain itself because at some point when I was a young trade union organizer, I'm going to close on this thought for now and then let's discuss it. But like when I was a young organizer, what my mentor, my first organizing mentor said to me, and by the way, nothing I say is uh, new, nothing, nothing. All good organizing ideas have come from hundreds of years ago. So, um, but what my mentor said to me is, Jane, really simple. As I was doing nursing, I'm organizing back then. Jamaican, Haitian, Puerto Rican, black, and a handful of white women, and but all women. And nursing home, I love doing nursing organizing. Anyway, so 
you know, he'd say, look, the thing you have to explain when everyone's scared is you got to be able to look at workers and say, look, here's the deal. The boss actually does not need you and they don't need you and just point to everyone like they actually don't need any of you. No boss needs any of you. They actually don't care about you. What they do need is all of you. And the sooner you mm. figure out to make a plan to get mm. together and refuse en masse to do bad things that your boss asks you to do, the sooner you're going to win and have a better life. So like that's the message to the Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, evil platform monster bosses right now is at some point we're going to go back to old fashioned organizing, which is the thing I like to talk about. And yes. when people unify, the Bezos warehouse will stop working and yes. they will have a different life. So th there's agency in that. It, it, like I, it makes me crazy when people talk about the gig economy and the platform economy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, right. That was an auto factory in 1930 before unionization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you're touching on reminds me of something right in the beginning of No Shortcuts. You have this list of strategies or things to do when you're organizing labor. And one of the things is talking about how, I don't have the book in front of me, but you write, the laborers know the risk. So don't, yeah. don't, don't lie to them. Don't. Oh yeah. That. The principles of organizing. Yes. Yeah. The principles of organizing. Oh and yeah. Workers know the rest. Don't lie to them. Absolutely. Yes. And I think specifically when we're thinking about these, I hesitate to even say newer economies, but you know, the friggin' Facebook, Google, whatever, Amazon, Uber, all of these things that are essentially becoming these conglomerations. Um, yeah. And I think people feel like, oh, it's a, it's, it is specialized in a similar way that being able to be a mechanic or be on a line can be specialized. And I also think that there's the fear of unemployment because our unemployment rates are high, but that was the same back then too. And so I feel exactly. like just like yeah. opening up with this idea of the risks are there, the risks are real, but when you stand together, the risks are lowered. And I think that that is kind of what you're describing when you're kind of like pointing to everyone as a whole. And that's what we hope as, you know, organizers or leftists to create power together in these moments. Yeah. No, yes, 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 yes. And it is, it is our, like, we're so bad in the US, including me. Like, I just think we're so bad at sort of not knowing our history, which means we're constantly repeating it and refighting it. Um, yes. And I think like all the calls now for like labor law reform, I just want to like, you know, put a noose around my neck and go jump off my porch because it's about like a Democratic Party strategy. Like mm -hmm. we, we, we're repeating something we were doing in 2005, six, seven and eight in the labor movement, which is like writing perfect labor law and then acting like if we elect the Democrats in 2020, they'll actually implement it. Like Barack Obama didn't do that. And he had the Senate, the House, the whatever. OK, I digress. But like so it, it, none of these things, that's the shortcut stuff. None of them really matter. Like the principle that mm -hmm. I was taught that when I walk up to a group of workers and I say, you think you're special? Boss doesn't give a shit about you. But the boss cares about all of you, because if you all walk out, there's going to be an immediate problem here. And right. If five of you walk out, there's not going to be a problem. You're going to be fired. But if you all walk out, you're actually going to win, right? And that's what we just saw in West Virginia, by the way. But so before yes. we get to West Virginia, well, before we get to beautiful things like that, um, <laughs> I still want to go back to the point that you were just making about, about this question that I, I feel like I am often, 
I'm trying to figure out how not to sound old. You know, at 53, like I, um, I, I, I know when I was 20, I thought people who were in their 50s were like, holy shit, I'm never going to be that old. But anyway, <laughs> now that I am that old. You are like, not old. When I'm sitting, when I'm in, when like when I'm in an audience, like I was giving this talk at Harvard to the third year law students last week, and yay! By the way, can we just say that the Harvard students won that they formed their union yesterday? It's like a yes. big new development. Yay! Pour so one out for Harvard. Bunch of the organizers last week it was so fun. Anyway, so but like when I'm in rooms with a younger, let's say like thirty-ish or twenties, let alone younger. People really frequently say, well, but those strategies worked for back then. And the whole point of writing their shortcuts was for me to begin to try to draw the lesson. Like mm. the reason why the auto workers developed the sit down strike, just just for sake of argument, right back to strategy, like what's the power analysis, what's the power structure analysis, and then what strategy is going to work for the condition that you're in? Like that's always a question as someone who's organized in the environmental movement and the justice movement and the trade union movement as a student organizer in politics, like the first step for all of us is what are the conditions of the folks that we're working with? And then what's the power analysis? And so what are the right mechanisms to take down that boss or that bad CEO or that shitty company, like whatever it is like that. So we're always having to be clear about what are the mechanisms and strategies that will work with this particular problem. And people are constantly raising the gig economy and the platform economy as something special and different and mm. new. And as an organizer, it's not special and it's not new. The unemployment rate in the 1930s, when the left organizers were creating the CIO and challenging an older labor movement, th there was not, it's not possible to think of a time when the unemployment rate was higher. So I had mm. this debate with someone recently and, you know, who was talking about all the underemployment right now and that won't work anymore and because I can refill them. And I'm like, there were like, people living all over the streets and what the CIO did, and I just wrote this, but it's not out yet. I just finished a huge piece that's going to come out in a journal this summer where I address this question straight, you know, head on. I just say, I go into the unemployment numbers in the 1930s and I say, so that was the backdrop. It wasn't full employment. It wasn't the 1945 moment when people think about folks coming home from the war, like in the early 1930s, the left leaning parties that were focusing on strategic sectors in the US workforce were very focused on unemployment. And I quote several different books that are books of strategy that were written in the 1920s and 30s, which I love to do because they really bring the lesson out. Like they start by saying, if the trade unions forget to focus on demands that will address all unemployed workers and all workers, um, including the housewives. I love the language about wives uh, in these old books. But anyway, um, <laughs> then they think of gendered. It's amazing. Like Mrs. Stryker. There's this book I'm reading from 1923 that talks about, don't forget about Mrs. Stryker. Anyway, um, so they're cute. But they, you know, they were, anyway, they won. They were winning, right? So, uh, and they were, in fact, not forgetting about Mrs. Stryker. Anyway, so, um, but it's like, it's so relevant. I mean, the reason why the sit-down strike was developed, and I would, I haven't been in an Amazon warehouse, but if I was in one, my guess is that that would also be relevant to an Amazon warehouse. Because if you tried to wage the strike from outside, they're just, you know, Bezos's boys will fly in with a drone and just fire you or pick you up by a drone and drop you off somewhere. I don't know what they're going to do, but that's, <laughs> they're getting close to that. You know what I mean? Like the drone totally. monsters coming. So sitting down inside of that warehouse and stopping the line that goes every, it's so crazy. I've been reading these numbers and talking to some folks who are doing Amazon work. It's like every six seconds they have to like stamp a package or they get dinged. 
Um, That is not any different than an than an assembly plant in the early 1930s, Mm. you know, pre you. So except, except the differences is that now um, we're also spoiled on like ordering our stuff from Amazon. Like the customers are going to be immediately at the throats of, you know what I mean? Like the customer who's like, I was supposed to get my book within five seconds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's a benefit I think of right now. I just wanted to interject because I was just thinking about the flood of like immediate customer complaints uh, that would just be like uh, drowning the Amazon. I don't know what you would call it. The bosses. Yeah. 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 I actually, this discussion about the the links between, you know, auto workers in the thirties and Amazon workers today makes me think a little bit about a discussion that I think is, is going on right now within the DSA and all three of us, are either in the DSA or have been in the DSA. And without getting too much into the discourse of the online, uh, (laughs) there is some debate going on right now about how important labor, I'm doing air quotes right now, really (laughs) is to a socialist movement in the 21st century. And that this discussion is happening at all is a little bit mind-blowing to me. And I, I almost feel silly even asking this, but you've written so much about labor and the path of political victory for the left right now. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more explicitly about that. Yeah. You know, and it, it amazes me. I did, Eric Ryder, new, newer writer, younger writer, did an interview with me and Jacobin this week. And we got partly right at that question a little bit, too. And I did a talk, like a very informal, but it turned out to be extremely fun book talk for like the Brooklyn DSA chapter a couple of weeks ago, like mm. sort of just offline walked in and did a chat and really got into this question, like the idea that people have given up on labor and workers as the strategic front for our work speaks volumes about how ignorant we are about two things. One, our history Mm -hmm. and two, how power works, like how power works, which is basically my ongoing obsession in life. Um, Because if we understand that fighting climate change is urgent fighting you know okay well we're getting back to labor if we say wages for housewives but like fighting on the you know on race like there are so many fronts right now to be fighting on but the question of our movement is how will we be most effective in the short term because there's a lot of people experiencing a whole lot of pain right now right Mm -hmm. like people are in pain people are in despair there are so many people, if I think about like most Latinos who I, you know, walk by on the street, right? I was just in Omaha, Nebraska. Like imagine being in Omaha, Nebraska and being a Latino in the big plants there now with ice all around you, let alone being in the Bay Area where people are also terrified because there are ice raids happening in downtown Oakland secretly, right? So there there are people who are hurting and in despair at so many levels in our country right now. So for me, that means what's the most effective and efficient? And of course, I don't mean shortcuts, right? But like, what's the most effective (laughs) and efficient way to build power, like for ordinary people to build real power? And and if if that's the question we put in front of us, like, how do we stop the pain? How do we how do we enable people to see their own power? How do we bring people in large numbers into struggle? And you'll note that I didn't say into the streets, because going into the streets doesn't always mean that that's what we should be doing. Like, how do we bring people effectively into struggle, oh, class struggle? The best venue to do it still 
is in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And within the workplace, you know, I'm keen on talking about what I call today's strategic sectors. And I said all this, and whenever I say this, whenever I get into like, yes, of course, it's the workplace still, that doesn't mean we don't have to be, you know, fighting on climate change and fighting a pipeline in our neighborhood and all of those things like we do. But Mm -hmm. if you're looking at like the DSA, like part of what I said, part of what I've been saying lately is, you know, that we, we are flailing everywhere because we're like a brainless movement. And part of what I said to the DSA folks is, look, you know, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, and there were parties that were giving guidance to a lot of young and new and new and unemployed people who wanted to make a change. And we're missing that today. So, you know, if DSA could step in and begin to play the role of like putting a head on the movement, that'd be really helpful. Not sure that we're quite there yet, but like our, it's like our, we have our, our movement is like a flailing body with no brain. And Mm -hmm. that's the problem with not having uh, kind of left smart parties that we had once upon a time. So, so back to the point about DSA and sector, like I think the workplace is absolutely central and it's central because people more quickly than any other sector where I have also been an organizer more quickly than any other sector People, ordinary people, can quickly come to the realization of who's to blame for the problems Mm. in their lives. Mm -hmm. So getting the blame straight matters in terms of political education. And the solution then is also different. The solution is also we got to band up together and actually start contending for power in the economic arena because the economic arena is what drives this country. That's capitalism, right? It's like we just, we get so far away from, I don't even want to talk about modes of production and shit that I finally read in grad school a few years ago, but like, I never had to read about modes of production to know that like the work we were doing mattered, right? Now I understand like all the theoretical background to Mm. the work I did for 25 years, but like that came later in life. You Mm -hmm. know, I think it's what I said about those principles. Workers know the risk. Don't lie to them. Put workers into struggle um, focus on strategic sectors, which are definitely education and healthcare. So glad we have another teacher emerging in the discussion here, right? But like like trying to get people to understand that going into the strategic sectors, just like people were going into auto steel machine shops, et cetera, in the 30s, matters a huge amount right now. And so again, if the question is, how can most people participate in actually building, coming to build their own sources of power and coming to understand them, that should be sort of like a way to end otherwise what can feel to me like absurd debates at sometimes, like just kind of um, absurd. And the last thing I'll say about what I said at the DSA meeting was some people were raising some of the debates that were going on in DSA, which made me, I guess, want to pull my hair out for a minute. But um, <laughs> that's not new uh, in our movement, right? So, and part of what I said is as an organizer, I get around in the past, the way I get around sort of leftist debate, for lack of a better word, is I say, look, just shut up or put up. Like, you go take that strategy and put it into practice. I want to see you put that into practice, and I want to see it work. And if the strategies that you're arguing about in this meeting, if you stop arguing and go do them, if you show me that you can get your 100% at work or strike using the strategy and the method uh, of the perfect principles that you're somehow reading somewhere and spitting out to me, <laughs> if you can turn that shit into effective Ooh. strategy, then I'm going to, then I'm going to be interested in having a conversation about it. Yes. But all, if all you want to do is sit in a room and write and read and debate something you wrote and read, uh, and you can't yourself figure out how do you actualize that strategy? What does it look like? 
how does it go into a, a series of wall charts in a room where you're engaging thousands of workers? If you can't translate your strategy into direct action that's winning, then you need to just pipe down and listen to some other people. Yes. Holy shit. Yes, yes. That yes, yes. fire is being served on season of the bitch. Yes. Today. I want to, <laughs> to deepen this a little bit. I, I think when a lot of people think and talk about unions, um, and this is still what we're talking about a little bit, but um, they think mostly about job-related stuff like pay and healthcare, et cetera. And they think about building power in the workplace to make the workplace better. But something that I've gotten from your work is that when the right and the bosses and the elites attack union power, it's not just about disenfranchising workers in their workplaces, but about consolidating and protecting right-wing political power more broadly. So can you just talk more about that connection between you know, building power in the workplace and building power politically in relation to many of the things about our society, like changing um, way more than just workplace conditions. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things to talk about. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We want to make you happy. <laughs> oh, no, you're making me happy just because you're asking all these good questions and you're thinking and you're doing it. And, you, and come on. And you like call your podcast, you know, you have the best name of the whole world like out there. I was like, <laughs> first, I'll talk to these women uh, because oh you're God. a pile of smart women. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that. You know, I, I wind up having to give it a name and I don't like when we give things, uh, I don't like when we create names for things, but um, <laughs> I don't because there's so much of that garbage. Oh my God, when you read academic literature, I was like, what? Okay, that's just organizing. Okay, that's just organizing. Okay, whatever you just made up that word for, that's actually just good organizing. <laughs> but anyway, so it's like foundations and and the academy, like philanthropy and the academy make people um, want to distinguish themselves from others and make shit up, like make names up for things that people have been doing for like hundreds of years. So anyway, they've been doing that um, with capitalism too lately. Oh god, incredible! I, well, that's why I hate the focus on like the new precariat. I'm like, sorry, uh, uh, have you ever? Do you know what the history of work is in the world? Like, it's been a precariat <laughs> since capitalism. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, so like, there's been people in non-conforming jobs forever. But anyway, I digress. So I think that again, back to the 30s. Not that I want to. Not that I think we should go back to the 30s. I I do not want to go back to the 30s. But like, back to like my analysis of the methods that have worked over time. Like that's really what my obsession is: how do we understand power over time, and how do we understand strategies that work over time? I would say my confession about sort of one of the places where I was ignorant about our history is when I began, when I shifted from community-based organizing, environmental justice organizing, and political organizing into back sort of into what my family roots were, which was full-time being in the trade movement, I trade union movement, I thought maybe the one interesting thing I'm doing or the one clever, I don't fuck, I thought, you know, you're young, whatever. When I was young, right. you know, oh, maybe I'm clever. I don't know. And now I'm like, okay, I'm an idiot. I'm 53. I don't know anything. But anyway, so it's like, <laughs> you know, when I started to do it, I thought, I don't understand why we're not building workplace power as the anchor to building a broader social movement. Because it was clear to me from like the very first campaign on the trade union side that I ever had the pleasure of being involved in, that we could build, back to the point about DSA, et cetera, that we could build more power faster in a workplace fight than any comparable fight I had ever been involved in. And believe me, I have been involved, even as a young activist, in some really great immediate fights, closing down bad plants, opening them up, forcing, you know, polluters to reimburse, you know, thousands of workers in their community for poison, whatever. Like, so a lot of things that were meaningful that had a yes or no answer to them that were important. But meanwhile, then I sort of go full time into the trade union 
sector and I begin to realize, oh, Jesus, that's the whole point about strategic sectors. We can really build badass power fast. And by that, I mean workers come to their own conclusion about the problem and the solution being collective action much faster in the workplace. And they begin to understand this thing called capitalism. Even if we don't call it that in the negotiation session, eventually we will. And we just begin to very simply break down why their boss takes more money from their check than they deserve. And it's it's really a great discussion in negotiations. But anyway, so so then, you know, there I was in Stanford, Connecticut years ago. Okay, it's 1997 and I'm working full time as a trade union organizer. You know, and the story I tell in my first book is a story that's worth retelling all the time. And um, I can bring it fast forward to Philadelphia in 2016, too, around around the education fight and some other things that are going on in Philly. But back in Stanford, Connecticut, you know, we had just begun to help thousands of mostly nursing home workers and then child care workers and then, you know, and then hotel. And then it began to expand out. But we began to organize in a non-union region in what we'd call a red region in a blue state. Right. So conservative bad people being elected, very low unionization rates, but in a, otherwise we thought of it as a blue state. So it was a specific reason to go there and to try some, what they thought were innovative strategies. Not till I'm doing my PhD when I realized there's nothing innovative. That's the whole point. So, you know, the workers begin, one worker who, who in negotiations should just, should just, uh, Marie Pierre, she had just won a great first contract. She had just helped form a union. And then she came in to a session in her office and handed me a letter and said she didn't understand it. You know, her English was so-so. She's brilliant, but her English was so-so. So she thought there was something wrong with her because she couldn't read this letter. I picked up the letter. I was like, Jesus, like four-point font, 10 pages long or whatever. It was like eight pages long. It wasn't meant to be understood. And of course, that that's what leads us to a giant anti-gentrification and really deep affordable housing crisis as the trade union movement in Southern Connecticut in the late 19. 19- 90s. And, 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 and what I began to call it was whole worker organizing, not because it's anything new, but just because I was trying to get the semantic point across that the trade union movement at its most effective in this country and elsewhere has never, ever just been about what happens with workers at work. It has yes. always been about mm-hmm. broader class struggle. And that means we take on anti- gentrification campaigns. And that means we need to take on directly the housing crisis afflicting so many millions of workers in this country. And it means we take on the transportation crisis, not because we're the transit workers, though I love transit workers, like all of us need to take on the public transportation crisis. All of us need to take on the climate crisis. All of us need to help transform, you know, jobs that are in the sort of wind and solar sector, which are shit jobs, and transform them into jobs that are as good as mine workers and steel workers have in the polluting sector. Because until and unless we do that, we're going to have a hard time making the case to get there, right? So to me, because the workplace is where ordinary people can first and most powerfully come to the conclusion that this system called capitalism turns out to be a bad deal, that's why we focus there. And we focus there in a holistic way. And as I say, when I look at a worker, maybe because I started as a community organizer, I don't know why, maybe because I had a good upbringing in a lefty household, like I never saw a worker as a worker. A worker to me is a whole person. They've got a set of problems and crises in their life that are all being caused by capitalism, just like they're crisis at work. And for us to build the kind of mass movement that we need to, to contend against 
uh, a very vicious form of capitalism, the labor movement must help people connect the dots between the crisis when they leave work and the crisis at work. And when we do that is when we build strong movements. And I want to go back to West Virginia because they just began to re-show us the same lesson as to the Chicago teachers, as did our work with healthcare workers in Connecticut, right? So Mm -hmm. that's how we win the most when we build broad social movements anchored in the workplace through building powerful workplace structures and then carrying that concept into every issue caused by capitalism affecting the working class. Yes. And the Arizona teachers just went on strike as well. So, yes. so exciting. 20%. And they got a 20% raise offer. Like, can we just discuss the, I don't know, anyway. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, it's really, really amazing. Yeah. Similarly, in another, of course, it's precariat because of capitalism. But one part of the economy that has been really notoriously seen as a precarious situation is grad school students and and whether they're teaching assistants or research assistants, their labor and their research. And so I read that you got your bachelor's at the University at Buffalo um, and that you did some incredible leftist organizing there. I just dropped out of a PhD program there, so really similar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was involved in some campaigns to try to get a living stipend for teaching assistants in particular. My department received $12,000 a year, um, but that that wasn't in the summer. And that was before our graduate fees were taken out, which amount to over $2,000 a year. And that was also before taxes. So some departments have more than that, but it's just like a really, really dire situation. But... That's obviously not specific to UB. It's not specific to, you know, any particular university. And I just wanted to hear about your experience organizing on a campus and and what strategies may be different on a campus setting or what, you know, or if it's really similar to other things or what you would recommend within your, like, whirlwind of knowledge about that. Yeah, to just build on that, um, my grad union, which is the GWC UAW at Columbia, is um, about to go on strike, or I guess by the time this airs, will have gone on strike to force the university to even recognize our union. So to build on Laura's question, I was wondering if you could, in addition, sort of like talk about strikes in particular within the academic context. Oh, I love talking about strikes. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Nothing makes me happier. No, I'm kidding. Kind of true. So yeah, so I think the adjunct world, there are a few things, I mean, not just the adjunct, grad student adjunct, like the whole Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. world of what's happening. uh, It's a great example, right, of of when unfettered capitalism, like capitalism, you know, off the leash, which is what, you know, we've been experiencing for like, I don't know, since Reagan, but really off the leash in like the last 15, 20 years, because it took a while for them to keep beating back every one of those regulations. And of course, they're going to beat back a few more now, whatever's left. But so like capitalism off the leash is so out of control. And you can really see it if you look at what's happened to the sort of college college slash university, like the higher education setting, just in terms of workers in it and the experience of how much labor gets donated um, to make a bunch of people a bunch of money. So I think, one, it's terrific 
that there is a lot of organizing going on among grad student workers, among workers of any kind. Like I know in some of these decisions, people are, like they did at Harvard, they're they're pushing the definition of worker even into the undergraduate realm, right? Anyone who's actually mm-hmm. doing academic work, I think it's terrific. But I'm going to come out, I'm going to make one meta comment about it and then we can dig into it more. The thing that has stood out to me as one of the biggest challenges in the academic environment is that who's really needed, again, I'm going to go back to a power analysis. So who's really needed besides the support of students, right, and parents, crucial, so that's a second factor, like how deliberate are we in building actual strategic support among parents and students? I haven't seen enough of that, but I want, let's put that in a parking lot for a minute. The most immediate challenge for graduate student worker unions, undergraduate student worker unions, adjunct campaigns, the the piece that we're all sort of dancing around in the power analysis is that the people who have the most power in terms of the workforce are the full-time tenured faculty. And in so many campaigns, what I hear is, oh yeah, forget them, you know, they're losers. Whether Mm. they have a faculty senate or a union, you know, they won't get their hands dirty. They're not being helpful. I hear a lot of complaints about this stuff. And to me, again, remember, I'm just an organizer. So I would be, if I was in that environment, I would have a whole, like if that was my focus and realm right now, I would be assigning uh, a ton of people to do nothing but force the hand and force the question on the full-time tenured faculty. Mm. And by force it, you know, we could talk about a lot of ways to do that. Like none of you get any paper graded, none of you get any research done, none of you get your classes covered, none of y'all are getting nothing until you sit up and realize that you are key to the power structure in the academic environment. And their lame-ass approach to not supporting graduate students and particularly adjuncts, let alone, you know, like the, let's think of the clerical workers union at Harvard and Chris Rondeau's work all those years and many great workers out there, like let alone also, or, or the Yale workers, the local 34 and 35. Like the whole point about building a strong trade union is it's all workers against the boss. Let's just go back to West Virginia, right? It's all workers against the boss. It doesn't matter what kind of worker you are. Here's the boss. So at Columbia University, there's the boss. And the students are going to matter and the parents are going to matter for sure. Um, But who matters are the tenured people who have the least to risk and who tend to be disengaged. When I'm working with, make a parallel equivalent for a minute, um, in in the healthcare setting, uh, in a hospital, um, the nurses, for sure, in this country have the most power. And some people will dismiss them and say, oh, they're professional class attitude. They don't care about what's going on in dietary and housekeeping or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, they A, that's not true. And B, it's like our job. Again, it's this is part of what organizing is. It's it's our job to help people make the connections they need to make to understand power. So it's, it's one way of saying for anyone out there who's involved in grad student, adjunct, fill in the blank, clerical worker, dietary housekeeper, all of it, it's not going to work until, it's not going to work well until if there's multiple unions on campus, like the focus of a DSA, or the focus of leftists should be the force, the coming together of all the different various workers on campus. So what's one way to do that? So if I'm a leftist, I'm involved in a campus fight. I'm going to infiltrate each one of the existing unions. Like we should be strategically infiltrating the existing unions, and that might mean going. It might mean doing an analysis of who's most likely to be recruited in the full-time tenure side, for example, and then go. And they especially don't know how to organize. Sorry, they just don't. So, like, going to actually teach them what organizing looks like, what a mm-hmm. solidarity and support mechanism for the rest of the workers, the grad student workers, and the adjuncts looks like. Like, they don't don't take it for granted that people know what it looks like to build solidarity because they don't. Right? That, again, that's sort of what 
organizing is about. It's actually enabling solidarity, which we actually have to construct in an indiv- in a society focused on individuals and individual power and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and all the bullshit that capitalism feeds people through Madison Avenue. Our job is to unpack that for people in very real ways. So I think we have to grapple with the question of the inattention of the full-time tenured faculty and all the fights that are going on on the campuses, and we need to infiltrate them. And we need to start doing things like, if you're in the Sodexo food workers, probably with a shitty contract and a not great deal if you're whatever, there's a lot of bad deals in the food service um, jobs right now in universities. So every one of them, clerical workers, if they're a different union, faculty, grad workers, adjuncts, the, the, the role of the workers is to begin to demand, we want to sit at the table together. So push from below, like the West Virginia workers did. Go in and start demanding, why do our contracts expire at different times on this campus or in this university system? Anyone, any worker who has a contract up against Columbia or Harvard or Yale or SUNY Buffalo needs to have their contracts expire at the same time. That's the first strategic act of a strategist is to make all contracts expire, have what's called common expiration. Before we build one big union, by the way, right? Like we have to practice what it takes to get to one big union. And getting to one big union starts with what's called common expirations across the contracts. So that when there's a fight by one, leftists can more broadly force it into being a fight by everybody Uh um, against, you know, a powerful boss like at Columbia. So that's, I mean, I think it matters. And then all the tension about, are we abandoning our students? Are we, is all those regular issues that face healthcare workers, education workers broadly, the answer is no. Like we're standing up for a better education, period. And we can do our work to bring the students and the parents and the broader community in. There's no question with the demands that we make around gentrification, if it's Columbia, around a whole bunch of issues. But I just think the big elephant in the room in a lot of the academic fights is the role of the elite academics who need to be brought to account um, and yeah. into the fight, because that's going to change the dynamic a lot. Absolutely. Hopefully that's what the strike does. Yeah. And the TAs all walk out. Great. Great. <laughs> I know. That would be that would be quite quite good. I guess I have a, a per if I can ask like sort of a selfish question. Now that you have given some amazing advice for people interested in grad student organizing, I will be joining the Chicago Teachers Union in about a year and a half when I become a teacher. And I've also been doing some organizing work, not labor organizing, but some organizing work, getting people elected to local school councils here, which I hope to tie into work with the union and in the struggle to get an elected school board here in Chicago, blah, blah, blah. Ambria's understanding her work has been like amazing. Just to, it's true. I bet. I bet. I can. I can tell from the discussion on the questions that you're having. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm blushing so hard right now. I guess I. I would like to know what kind of advice you have for me. uh, Just like being a little, a tiny little baby going into the union and doing. I I don't know. Working on these projects. Mm. Because you know a lot about you know the the history of teachers here in Chicago, and you've been yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So first of all, I think um, it's so great that that's what you're, whatever you're doing now, and that that's what you're going to be doing. And again, that goes back to strategic sectors. And also because it's great work, right? I mean, like, education work and healthcare work is just super wonderful, in addition to except when the bosses, you know, make your day bad. But like, the actual work, the mission driven nature of the work is so uh, great. And it lends itself to broad social movement and community based organizing, you know, writ large. So I think the the first thing is that when people go in, they think, 
like they want to go or this is this is maybe more true in Europe where I'm I'm getting really irritated by a lot of like internecine left warfare that goes on between parties um, in the European context. But there people just go in to like run for high office in the union. And I don't know what they do. They, they get to report to their socialist faction that they got a big position. I don't care. It's back to my argument about like, can you lead a strike? So mm. um, I think when we go in, the most important thing is whatever school you're in, in the case of school, whatever neighborhood you're in, like the first thing you do is make sure that everything is tight and strong where you are. Like really all the basics, like learning how to do wall charting, making sure that you've got a really tight, effective structure in your school or your fill in the blank, wherever you're working. Like the work starts with our own backyard. How strong is the structure that we're building in this school? And then once your school is in good shape, then it's, have we charted, do we have top parent support? So if we pass a petition in this school can, do we have a structure that's so effective and so tight that we can get 95% of people on a hand-signed petition or a photo poster in one day? Does it take two days? Does it take four days? Like the role of structure tests in our work is about understanding where we have to prioritize because things are strong versus weak as we're building to a powerful like citywide structure or, oh, to challenge capitalism in the United States, you know, starts right in your workplace and right in your neighborhood. So um, can we get to 95% agreement and is our structure good enough to maximize that 95% right away in my own school, in my own neighborhood, uh, whatever it is. And then, uh, great, that's great. Okay, so phase two, okay, our workplace structure is tight. Do we have a system in place to communicate effectively with all of the students outside of the work context, but more importantly, all the parents of the students and all the ministers and parishioners and whatever it is connected to the parents and the students? How do we know? Have we run a straight up parent petition for the parents to say mm-hmm. we're standing in solidarity with the teacher's demands on the following issue, textbooks, curriculum, whatever it is, something. And I'm doing this work now in Toronto with the teachers union there. We've just they've just nailed their first unbelievable majority petition across 465 schools. Yes. And yeah, so beautiful. And now they're moving on to like, how do we get how do we build the parent organization? Mm-hmm. And and it's hard for people. It's it's actually counterintuitive. Like the first thing that a lot of smart people up there wanted to do was like, okay, well, we, we did our school by school petition, but now we're just going to put out uh, this petition for parents to sign. And I'm like, okay, wait, 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 whoa, <laughs> how will the parent petition be a structure test about the capacity of the parents school by school, right? Because mm-hmm. the parents won't know how to do this either unless we actually teach them. Like activism versus organizing, it's so unbelievably different conceptually. Like my brain revolves around every challenge is um, how do we build structure? How do we test the structure? How do we have the right people in the right position? Just like a coach in a sport. Not that I want to get into sports, although I happen (laughs) to love them and like the Warriors are winning. Okay, sorry. But anyway, so um, (laughs) like when you think about what a coach does, like, I mean, some people think it's a dumb analogy. I don't know why. I think it's a good analogy. So I'm going to go with it for a second again. Like (laughs) a coach, a coach is not on the winning team. Like Steve Kerr from just going with a good leftist coach, Popovich down there, we're playing against San Antonio, two leftist coaches challenging Donald Trump, the bosses standing with their black workers, all that, right? Okay, like, if you just look at the good coaches who happen to have great politics too, right? Like, they're not on the field playing. They're, they're, they're helping and enabling their players to play to their best. They're helping to get them positioned in the correct positions. Like, maybe you shouldn't be a guard. Maybe you should be something. Like, that's, like, organizing is about helping people understand how to be effective in their fight. So mm-hmm. going back to your school and what's happening in Toronto right now, 
Like that was a hard discussion I had to have a few weeks ago until people got it. Like, yes, even when we launched the parent petition to support the change in the funding formula to build the kind of schools that Toronto's kids deserve, taken right off the Chicago school report, like, you know, we have to understand our job is to also teach the students, parents, and the community around us how to build an effective, powerful structure because it it isn't logical. If you've never built a powerful structure to then build more power, you think you just pass a petition and 5,000 signatures is 5,000 signatures. No, it's not 5,000 signatures. If you get 5,000 signatures because you've explained to the parents that they've got to organize school by school, you're then laying the framework to win the school-based election that you're trying to win when the next election comes up because you mm-hmm. understand which parent can get shit done effectively too, right? So that to me, if I'm going into a school as a young teacher or a new teacher, um, I'm going to focus on building the house, the house strong around me and using the strategic position I'm in as an educator to help everyone else to help educate. Like I would say, what I love about Karen Lewis was she was just this, like this badass nationally board certified teacher, which is like the highest honor a teacher can get in the K to 12 system. And what Karen did was she decided to make all of Chicago, her classroom pedagogically. Mm. Like she began to teach all of Chicago what she knew about building power. And that's what that's one of the special roles that educators get to play is like, and I think West Virginia's education units just did the same thing. They were teaching, they, they took on all of West Virginia as their classroom and began to educate all of West Virginia about how power works and how building a powerful counterweight to the power structure works. So when we see our whole neighborhood, our whole community, our whole school, or our whole healthcare system and the communities around us, when we begin to school everybody as educators, all organizers are our educators. The question is, how well do we do it? Mm-hmm. How well do we think about our pedagogy? How big is our universe? Like, that's all of our jobs. OMG, I'm going to cry. Yeah, oh my God. so good. It's so good. We are, <laughs> unfortunately, out of time. So I wanted to ask you if you had any final thoughts you wanted to close with or anything like that so that we don't just be like, okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) No, first of all, I love season of the bitch. I just, I'm so excited about that. So um, everyone should listen to your show. And I love that you're having organizers on. And I guess the last thing just relates to that. I just, I appreciate people who are trying to have hard conversations because I think a lot of what we have to do whether it's in DSA, out in the world, in our schools, in our unions, wherever, in the climate change movement, grappling with the questions we have to deal with there that are so class and, you know, whatever. Like, people have to think about um, the difference between activism and organizing, and we have to think about being effective, and that means we have to be training our brains to being able to analyze power. Um, and that is my, uh, that's my wish for everyone who may listen to your May Day, early May Day show. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. This thank has been you. like the best thank thing you. ever. Oh my God. <laughs> this is I've fantastic. heard other really good shows you did, so it's only the best thing ever for today. <laughs> oh, I can't. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so, much. so much. Alrighty then, that's our show. We are so freaking thrilled that we were able to talk to Jane. I can't even think about it. So crazy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As always, you can 
follow us and get at us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Season of the Bee. We also have an amazing website, seasonofthebee.com. And we have a bunch of really cool merch situation going on with that, which, yeah, get it. Get it now. It's about to be a new season. You can be strutting your stuff in your Season of the Bee merch. (laughs) Strut our stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Theoretically, the seasons are changing, but it's always Season of the Bitch. (laughs) Yes. Did you just Yeah, do I mean that? obviously. That's that's the realist. You just did that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. She did it. We didn't write that down ahead of time. I just want everybody to know. <laughs> <laughs> that joke was not made like in a workshop. Tinkered with yeah. for hours. It was Kellen like a just... real live thing that just happened. Yeah. She just made did that. You can also like rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and slide us. You're cold, hard cash <laughs> on Patreon. Where does that come from? Like, why is cash cold? I don't get it. Also, why is it hard? I mean, I guess, like, it's a solid, but, like, you know. <laughs> it's hard compared to, like, a gas. Are they talking <laughs> but about it's not things? hard compared to, like, a card, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know what to do. Slide it our way. <laughs> All right, well, love you guys so much. Love you. Love love you. Season of the Bitch.